Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can have a seat. And just want to officially say Merry Christmas Eve of Eve to everyone. It's kind of amazing that Christmas is like in two, what, two, three days? Two days? Two days. <laughs> um, it feels like December literally just started like three days ago. Um, but anyways, here we are, and uh, thankful to uh, worship with you this morning. Uh, you are the ones who have um, made it here. I feel like half of our church texted me this morning, and they're like, yeah, we're throwing up, and we're sick, and we're, and so it was just going around over the weekend, and so you're the, you're the brave ones that have, that have made it out, and so thankful just for you, and thankful to be able to open up the scriptures this morning, and, um, and just look at this story, the story of hope, um, faith, and love, and that's really what I want to talk about when we go through this. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up uh, with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and we're going to read the story of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1. And as you're getting there, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been walking through this narrative pretty much the entire Advent season thus far, um, and we've looked at kind of how God has, has really used what we call, I say we call, Tim Keller was kind of the first one who termed it this, but kingdom economics, like what God is, is doing in the midst of bringing himself ultimately to earth. Um, and it's not in the form of what we would have uh, necessarily thought it would have been. If, if you were to say the Prince of Peace is coming, the King of Glory is coming, uh, you would have not used shepherds in the first century to be the first ones to herald this good news. Um, shepherds, they're literally, back in their law, um, their voice was not held up in the, in the court of law. They were considered to be rejected, um, just kind of at the ends, um, the fringe of society type people. And so no one would trust a word that they, were, that they would say, and, but yet the angels show up two shepherds in the field providing them the news to be able to go and herald that Jesus is born. And then not only that, you have Mary and Joseph who um, are peasants at best in this day and age uh, who have really no respectability amongst their peers either. For if they did, there would be room for them in the end. This is a high honor culture where people would literally bump people out in order to move people up based on respect. And so um, there's no room for them in the end. And so who God is using, the people involved at play in order to bring about the birth of Jesus is what we call kingdom economics, using the weak to kind of shame the wise, using the um, lesser things of life in order to display his strength and his beauty. And so that's what we have covered over the last couple of weeks and now leading into today's verse of how it ultimately comes and deals with us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. So what I want to do today on this Christmas Eve of Eve is look at the proclamation of these angels, what they said, why it is good news, and how do we live out this good news daily, practically for us. So there was this one angel who was sent by God first to proclaim to these shepherds, and what he ultimately proclaimed first and foremost was, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the rest of the angel gang shows up and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so those are the two kind of verses that I'm going to pluck out of this to be able to focus our attention on because this is ultimately, we, we've looked at kind of the earthly players that are, at, that are in play here, but now what is the message that is coming from heaven declaring to the earth regarding this birth of Jesus. And I want to show you how this good news has brought us really three things. And this isn't going to be like um, a Baptist kind of three-point message. Uh, so there's not like three Ps in alliteration or anything like that. But rather, this is just three words that I want to look at. And these words are found in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And you don't have to turn there with me. But 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these three is love. So I want to show you this morning how the coming of Jesus in Luke 2 is good news because Jesus brings, I'm going to do them out of order, but Jesus brings hope, faith, and love. The Christmas message that he is ultimately establishing is hope, faith, and love. And so the first one, the birth of Jesus, is the birth of hope. The first angel shows up. He says, I have a message. First of all, don't be afraid. Uh, he kind of had to throw out the don't be afraid because these are shepherds in a field. Um, and so if you've ever been in a locker room with men, like this is probably what's going on in this field right now is, is locker room talk amongst these shepherds. Um, these are roughneck, crass kind of guys um, who when angels appear from heaven, they're not thinking good news is probably happening. They're probably thinking there's an execution about to happen because of the type of people that we are. 
But yet the angels responded to them, do not be afraid, for rather we bring you good news. And the news that they bring to them as the heavenly hosts show up is glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest is the first thing that these angels hear that is good news. So the idea of glory, it carries an ultimate beauty or magnificence. That's the idea of glory that we see throughout all of the scriptures. On top of that, it carries kind of the connotation and specifically throughout the Old Testament and some of the New Testament that glory is very weighty. It's very heavy. The glory of God is heavy. What the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God being weighty or heavy is that it has the power to displace things. It has the power to reorder things. It has the power to be able to move things out of the way. And so when the angels show up and say, glory to God in the highest, what is being declared is there is a beauty on earth now that the earth has not seen before. There's a beauty on earth now that is more beautiful than anything that the earth has seen. It's more magnificent than anything that is considered magnificent in this world. It holds a much greater weight of glory to it than anything that we would see on this side of glory and think it is good. And so basically when he shows up and the angel shows up and says glory to God in the highest, he's saying there's now something better than fill in the blank. There's something better than your marriage. There's something better than your children. There's something better than your goods that you have. There's something better than your home, your cars, your career, your relationship. There's something better now that has shown up that is providing for you more glory to be seen than what you've currently seen. If that doesn't quite make sense, maybe this will help. I don't have a problem with beef jerky. I love beef jerky. But if it's ever between beef jerky and like a medium rare cooked filet, I'm going with the medium rare filet every single time. Not because I don't, I like beef jerky, especially on road trips, it's good. But there's always going to be something better than that I'm going to choose over that. And so this is the idea of glory coming, is that now glory is revealing to us a greater than, a beauty that we have not seen yet. And then he goes on to say, he actually spells out for us what this glory is in the next thing that the angel says. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What is the magnificence that has come? It's that God in sending Christ, the coming of Jesus, is making peace with mankind. He's making peace with mankind. It's not only just peace amongst one another, but it's peace ultimately vertically between us and the Father. It's between us and our Creator. That tension we feel, that gnawing we feel, that daily wrestle that we feel with, with whether or not we're ultimately satisfied isn't necessarily a circumstantial thing, but rather it's ultimately a spiritual thing in which we are not fully reaping the benefit of a personal relationship with God. We're not ultimately satisfied in Christ alone. Because if we were, then the circumstances around us wouldn't affect us in the way that they do. We wouldn't be longing for, looking for, after satisfaction in worldly things if we truly understood that glory to God in the highest has become the reality that a reconciled relationship, peace, has brought us and removed from us the toil that's in our hearts the stress that's in our hearts, the anxiety that's in our hearts. Glory to God and the highest peace on earth 
among those with whom he is pleased. See, you and I, the Bible's clear, are broken from birth. We're brought forth in iniquity. We're rebellious against our creator. Every single one of us, as Romans 3 says, are not righteous. There's not one righteous. There's not one that is seeking after God. There's not one who has been able to clean themselves up and have come and approached God and said, look how awesome I am. Therefore, you should give me, grant me salvation. There's not one of us who do that, who have the ability to do that. Any righteousness that could be forged with your own hands is a false righteousness and not acceptable to God. Even in the book of Isaiah, he says, your your righteousness or your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So even our our mere attempts to, to make ourselves better or to make ourselves great are not ultimately going to be able to measure up because we're sinners, we're broken. Anything that we touch ultimately is destroyed. And because God has an economy, because God has ways in which he is just and ways in which he works both the good and the evil out is because evil has tainted everything that exists. It has to die in order to be ultimately rebirthed back into the glory and design that God created it to be. This is why the earth that we have now is ultimately going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new earth created. He's going to make all things new again. It's not just us receiving new glorified bodies, but it's making all things new, even including heaven. God has to ultimately destroy everything in his economy in order to rebirth it back into the design of what he intended it to be. But the way he intended that to happen is by sending his son Jesus to us. And to not only be born, and to not only live a perfect life as he lived, it wasn't enough for Jesus to live perfect. Jesus also had to pay the sacrifice for our wages of sin. And what's the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, death. Death. And here's what death is. Yes, yes, it's physical death, but on top of that, death is the inability to experience the fullness of life in any given domain. Think about that for just a minute. When we think about the wage of sin as death, we think about death in terms of physical death. We think about death in terms of also eternal death, spiritual death in hell. But the reality is, is this side of glory, this side of heaven, there's a spiritual, emotional death that we are experiencing every single day to the point that we have an inability to experience the fullness of life that Christ promises us in every domain of life. What I mean by that is I have non-believers who are married and they have great marriages. I, 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 I'm not saying, that I don't, and I don't think the Bible teaches that you can't have a good marriage if you're not a believer. But the reality is, is they cannot have the fullness of what marriage is meant to be scripturally as a mingling of souls, gospel-centered in understanding what Christ has ultimately purchased between him and his bride, the church, A non-believer cannot experience that in marriage. So if we were to say, out of a scale of 1 to 10, how great their marriage could be, maybe a 7. But it will never be a 10 without Christ. But that's in every domain of life. Career will not be what career is meant to be if Christ is not at the center of it. 
if glory has not come into this place and provided peace amongst whatever it is in your domain of life. Sports will never be what they are intended to be without Christ being at the center of them. Friendship will never be what friendship is designed to be if Christ is not at the center of it. And so for us, this, this death has impacted every aspect and domain in society. And this is why the heralding of the good news, this is why the sharing of the gospel is so important, not only for the eternal, but also for the here and now, because we have people, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have neighbors, we have family members who are around us who do not have the opportunity to experience life to the fullest, the here and now, because they do not have Christ at the center of it. They do not have Christ providing for them all that is in him in order for them to be satisfied. So rather what we're doing, what we're kind of playing in this game of society, of this game of culture, is what Romans 1 says, just the great exchange. Rather than worshiping our creator through Christ, we're worshiping creation. We're worshiping things of God rather than God himself. We're we're worshiping the gifts rather than the gift giver. Which, is that not what sin is? Is that not what the sin in the Garden of Eden was? Let's worship his creation, something that will, if I only partake of this one thing, then I will be like God, which to them was saying this one thing is more valuable to me than listening and obeying God, who has also allowed me to enjoy everything else in creation. Like a lot of times we focus on the fact that it was like the one thing God said don't do, but no one ever focuses on that, then frees them to be able to do everything else that was in creation at that point. People talk about like it was a heavy-handed or heavy command of God to be able to say, don't do this. It's kind of like saying, don't look in the back of the room right now, and everyone wants to do it. But it wasn't heavy-handed. God's one law was just depend on me as your greatest treasure. And enjoy all that I've provided you. But don't worship what I've provided you. That's why I give you a command. That's why I give you a command to remind you of who I am. We can come together in society without Christ. And again, at best, maybe enjoy it to a seven. But Christ entering into the scene as a baby in a manger is providing hope is providing hope that there is something better, that there is more to life than what we're after, that there is more to our marriages than what we're experiencing, that there is more to our friendships than what we're experiencing, there's more to money than what we're experiencing, there's more to fill in the blank of whatever that thing is that creates anxiety within your heart, within your mind, whatever that is, Christ showing up, God sending his son Jesus to us, is telling us there's more to it than what you're experiencing right now. That he is coming to fulfill all aspects of our society and our domain. He's promised this to us. And so Jesus coming is providing us hope. It's the birth of hope for us. Now how do we then experience that hope? How do we then engage in that hope? When we say Jesus is here, something is better than How we engage it is what we call faith. So Jesus' coming is also the birth of faith. And I want to go to a passage in Matthew chapter 9. 
that kind of shows this, this faith being played out when it comes to us trusting in Christ himself. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 says this, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think it evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The friends of this paralytic man have one thing in common. That one thing is not confidence in this world and its natural abilities. For if they did, they would just take the man to a doctor, right? I mean, he's just paralyzed. Take him to a doctor. Hey, let's try to perform some kind of surgery. Now, I wouldn't necessarily trust first century surgery like in this kind of day and age, but, but like there's physicians. Like Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts is a physician. They have physicians in this day and age. So just take this man to a doctor if you trust earthly men and natural abilities. But instead, they bring this paralytic to Jesus because they're trusting in Christ and his supernatural abilities. In the case of the paralytic, Jesus is doing two things with his response to their faith and confidence in him. One is he's pointing out the difference between the temporal and the eternal. They bring a paralyzed man, and the first thing Jesus does is just respond to him and says, your sins are forgiven. That'd be kind of like me saying, I'm going to fill out a Christmas wish list and then I don't get what I asked for. <laughs> like, like, thank you for forgiving my sins, but like, what about the fact that I'm still paralyzed? And Jesus is pointing out the eternal versus the temporal. Jesus still does the saving of the man from his physical when he actually heals him and, and calls him to rise up and walk. But he does it after he shows him the better than. Because here's the reality. If Jesus just showed up, saw the faith of these men, yeah, they're trusting in the confidence of him. They're trusting in his supernatural abilities. Hey, you can heal this paralyzed man. Will you do that? And if Jesus just healed the man physically, what's to keep that guy from three weeks later getting hit by a horse-drawn carriage and breaking his legs again? Or at best, to live another 40 years only for his body to continue to deteriorate again to the point of being bedridden before he goes on to glory. Like just solving our physical circumstances isn't ultimately going to solve the better than the hope that is being promised. But faith was at play here. Faith in Jesus solely for physical healing or financial peace or simply a better life does not suffice. But faith in Jesus is not simply tied to bettering your circumstance, but rather is for bettering your eternity. Case in point, I also want you to see this play itself out. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, this is where Jesus is walking on the water. And there's a, a boat where, um, this is just after they fed the 5,000. He sends his disciples into a boat. They're going across the sea. Jesus goes up into solitude on a mountain. He's returning from the mountain to go be with his disciples on the sea. And this is what happens. Immediately, he made the disciples get to the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Kind of similar language there with the angels talking to the shepherds. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, no, just think about quality of faith there. Jesus has just showed up, walking on water, speaks out to them and says, don't be afraid, it's me. And then Peter responds, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and he comes to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter, when, when trusting in Jesus' authority, we call that faith, trusting in his authority, he walks on water. Peter, when trusting in his own ability based on the life circumstances around him, a storm-tossed sea, lack of faith in Jesus begins to sink. So the first time I ever read that, I thought, I want nothing to do with Jesus if my hope is dependent upon the volume, quality, and consistency of my trust or faith in him. I'm not kidding. The first time I heard someone preach on this story, they focused so much on Peter and the quality of his faith and whether or not he trusts in Jesus. If he were able to kind of muster up the strength to just keep his focus on Jesus. And I remember thinking, like if that's what Christianity is, is me constantly not only having the anxieties of the world around me, but now having the anxieties of my own faith and my own trust and my own confidence in Jesus, dependent on whether or not I actually get to experience the hope that he provides, salvation, or if we're in this scenario, Peter walking on water, if it's dependent on me trusting, I want nothing of it. Because if it's dependent on my consistency, my volume, my quality of faith in him, and if it was consistent on Peter here, this is Peter's death. Like we're watching Peter die if it's dependent on him getting it right in his faith in Jesus. And so I love what Jesus does. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Even in the midst of Peter's doubt, Jesus reaches in and saves him. I love that. I love that. When they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Here's a beautiful truth I want you all to see and marvel at. If God's granting of salvation was dependent on the quality of our faith, no one would be in this room. No one would be. How many times do you talk yourself out of something? Or you go back and forth in your own mind and you're wrestling with whether or not this is true or legit or whether this is a good idea or not a good idea. I mean, we're prone to do that. We're designed to do that in a lot of ways. Sin has so fractured our confidence that we have no confidence in anything. 
full confidence in anything. So this idea of faith is also a gift to us. Hope was born, hope came. Faith was also born. Faith is also granted. We see this in Ephesians 2. That literally there's nothing that we bring to the table of our own salvation. There's nothing that we bring to the table of this story of Christmas that allows us to have confidence or to boast in our own selves. But rather, it's boasting in Christ for the fact that he provides us the hope that he promises. He also provides us the faith to be able to trust in that promise. To be able to trust in who he is. And the reality is, is your faith is not going to look perfect at all times. Which is beautiful. Because we don't have to trust our faith. We don't have to trust that our faith is the thing clinging us, binding us to Christ at all times. It's not. Jesus is what binds us to himself at all times. Everything begins with him. The birth of Jesus is God's initiating love towards us, not trying to draw us to himself. And I know even in Christianity, we have a lot of language that focuses on that idea of us being drawn to the Lord. But even God says, no man comes to the Father unless they are drawn by him. God grants us the ability to be able to come to him, to be able to see him in his beauty. When we're blind, we're blind. We don't see him. Therefore, we would not see the glory to be able to run to or to walk to without him providing this faith. This is good news for us because we don't have to muster it up ourselves. This is good news that glory in the, in the highest has appeared, not only bringing hope that we can have a life lived to the fullest, but also that we can have a faith that is also provided for us to be able to walk towards life in the fullest. This was not God showing up saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? How will we save them from themselves? God's been in control from the entire time. And us seeing that control is what builds our faith and our trust. Us seeing that God is sovereign over all aspects of our salvation builds faith for us. Builds trust and confidence for us. God in Genesis 3 and in Isaiah 9 and in Micah 5 God promising the birth of a Savior and then coming through with that promise 2,000 years ago. Us being able to see it through Scripture and Him providing that for us in Scripture allows us through the Holy Spirit to have a faith produced. To be able to trust that He's answered His promise then, He'll answer His promise now. He'll continue to be faithful towards us because we've seen Him be faithful in the past. And these two things, hope and faith, come together and as they marinate with one another, they produce love. They produce love. And I'll do my best to kind of share this via an illustration. And this runs a theme with me. Apparently, I like food. But say someone told you about a meal. And they said, this is the best meal that we've ever experienced. Greatest meal. Like the, they're, they're describing the, the savory flavors. They're describing all the ingredients. They're describing the tastes that they experienced. They're saying, I've literally have never had anything better 
than this meal that I've partaken of. And so for you, you're thinking, man, I just had Taco Bell, and, and it was good for a little while, and then it went bad later. And so like this idea of a, a meal that's like the fullness of any meal that I've ever had, like I would love to have that. So, so for that person, because of someone else sharing some good news to them, it's kind of starting to have a little bit of hope. Maybe there's something a little bit better than what I've had so far. And so for them, they then ask you, how can I partake of this meal? I would love to enjoy what you're enjoying. What does that look like? Is there a recipe that I need to put together? Like, what do I need to do in order to eat this meal? And they say, no, 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 you don't have to do anything. Actually, you just, why don't you just come? Like, you don't have to bring anything. Just come. We're going to cook this meal for you. We want you to so experience this meal that we're, gonna pre- we're literally going to prepare everything. All you have to do is just eat it. Just partake of it. Eat it. That's all you have to do. So for you, you're, you're showing up to this house. These people are having you over. You're showing up. You have a hope that this is going to be the best meal that you've ever had. And now there's a little bit of faith and trust kind of working into the mix because you're hoping that they're actually going to deliver on the promise that this meal is going to be the best thing ever. So you showing up as a faith and trust being provided in this moment. And then you sit down and you partake of the meal. And it truly is the best meal that you've ever had. For the carnivores in here, maybe that is a filet mignon with asparagus on the side or whatever it looks like, mashed potatoes. For vegetarians, maybe it's like a roasted lettuce. I don't know, I don't know what else you eat. But, but whatever you envision, and you're, maybe it's pasta al dente with like roasted red pepper alfredo sauce, whatever it looks like, this is the best meal that you've ever partaken of. And they delivered in on it. So now you have full faith and trust in them that not only did they deliver it, but they could probably also continue to deliver it again and again and again. You just continue to partake of this meal because you've now experienced it. But in doing those two things, now what's produced within you is a sense of gratitude, right? A sense of love. Not only for these people who have provided for you this best meal ever, but also a love and an adoration and a worship of the meal itself. Like, thank you so much that these flavors that I got to experience were greater flavors than I've ever had before. So we get to adore this moment, this experience that we've partaken of. And this is exactly what's been produced in Jesus coming to this earth. Is God is telling us, I've got something for you to partake of. I mean, Jesus even gets weird with some of his teachings. He's like, bread wine i'm going to use this as an illustration if you come and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood i mean that's like cultic language right there but this is what jesus was expressing to the people if you partake of me if you consume me as your identity it will be for you life and not only life but life abundantly as he says in john 10 Life to the fullness. Life to the fullness in every domain of society. Your marriage will now be better because I'm in it. Your relationships will be better because I'm in it. Your schoolwork will be better because I'm in it. Everything that you do, you now can actually do with excellence because I'm excellent. I provide the better than. I provide the greater than. I provide for you the hope and the faith and for you to now enjoy it in love. 
And this actually is what ultimately is breathed out when the angels say, glory to God in the highest, the better than the hope, the faith has arrived, but the peace on earth is the love now between us and God and us and others. We now have peace because God doesn't owe us anything. He's provided to us everything. We don't owe God anything because he provided it to us freely as a gift. And we also now don't expect anybody else to owe us anything because in Christ we have everything we need. Everything we need is in Christ. Therefore, we're free to give everything we have, not expecting anything in return. The reason love is the greatest of these is because love is the only expression between faith and hope that actually can be shared with others. Think about this. You can't hope someone. You can't faith someone. But you can love someone. Hope and faith are something that personally happens within you, between you and God. They produce love for God. But in that, it's the only extension of God's grace to us that then expresses itself out towards others. Love is the greatest of these because love is the avenue in which hope and faith are dispersed amongst the entire world. We love others because of the hope and the faith that God has provided to us and the love that we have experienced in that. Charles Spurgeon once preached, he said, three graces should be always conspicuous in Christians, faith, love, and hope. They are each mentioned by Paul in the opening verses of the epistle from which our text is taken. These lovely graces should be so conspicuous in every believer as to be spoken of and consequently heard of even by those who have never seen us. He's saying these three, as he says, sisters of grace should be so evident in our lives that they are experienced by those who are not of the faith, who are not of Christianity. So faith is in Christ Jesus. Hope is laid up in heaven, and love is what binds us to Christ and to one another. These three become our reality because of the birth of Jesus. God promised us a Savior, giving us hope. God sent us a Savior, giving us faith. God delivered this this Savior over to death in our place, producing in us forgiveness of sins and the eternal love with which we now have received from God and expressed to God and others. This is what's being produced. Us receiving this is what puts on display God's glory in the highest. Because we've now received a gift that's better than any gift this earth could ever offer. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. once said. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This good news that, has, that these angels have just broken through the heavens in order to declare to these shepherds, the only way in which that good news can be shared throughout is via love. Which for like the Bible debaters, no one's ever won someone to Christ by debating theology. It just doesn't work. But loving them and serving them with practical deeds of helpfulness and providing for them a hope that is seen in Christ Jesus. There have been people that have asked, man, where did that come from? 
They kind of get a taste of it. And to close out with this statement, I want you to see something here. Because, and, and I want to kind of, I don't have anything against Santa. I just kind of want to go against something that he says. Robert Farrar Capone, I'm not sure if he's related to Al Capone or not, but he once said this, grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Grace cannot be our default mode of living and the, and the joy of knowing we are freely and fully and forever forgiven until we can get past the notion that someone's keeping score. I think we have this idea, and similar to Santa Claus, I, naughty and nice, I'm watching, that, that we've kind of attributed that to God, that the only way in which He's going to bestow upon us joy and grace is if we measure up even after we become Christians. Like we have this view of God towards us that is, all right, how, how'd they do this year? how they read their Bible? Uh, D. how they do sharing the gospel? C minus. We have this view of God that he's keeping track over us and the reality is, is this crushes our soul and this crushes any opportunity for us to be able to live life to the fullness in every domain of society. As soon as, I mean, even think about this in the Christmas season right now. As soon as someone gives us a gift, we feel bad if we haven't given them anything, right? As soon as God gives us the gift of Jesus, we immediately move into, now let me earn it. This is also why I hate the last closing scene of Saving Private Ryan. If you don't know the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a phenomenal movie. But Tom Hanks, he has a couple of soldiers with him. The entire movie is, is their mission to be able to go and save this one Private Ryan, to get him back home. And one after one, and if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out for a long time, so if I'm bursting it here, I'm sorry. But one after one, they're being plucked off, they're being killed, they're being tortured, they're, they're literally dying off trying to save this one guy, Private Ryan. And they finally get there, and there's this scene at the very end of the movie, this battle's going on, this war's going on. Tom Hanks is hit because he brought a pistol to a tank fight. He's down. And in his dying breath, he pulls Ryan, who's, who's played by Matt Damon. He pulls him in, and he looks at him, and he says, earn this. Earn it. And the closing scene, which is also actually the same as the opening scene of the movie, is, is Ryan as an old man at the, at the cemetery looking at these men who have sacrificed their lives. And he's playing his life over in his head, wondering whether or not his life was good enough for their sacrifice. Man, God does not do that with us. God saved us at our worst. At our worst, he saved us. He shows up to almost every single character in Scripture when they're at their worst. And he pays the ultimate price for them. He dies on the death for them when they are at ultimate penalty of death deserved. God's not keeping score over us. Every single day he's bestowing to us the grace 
that is hope and faith and love. He's lavishing his love. He's lavishing the gift of Jesus every single day over us. It's not just at the moment of our salvation. It's every single day in our life that we can find sufficiency in Christ alone. That when we're feeling down, when we're feeling depressed, when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling less than, Christ is there to to lift us up and to exalt the humbled, to exalt the ones who are poor in spirit, to exalt us to be able to say, no, 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 that is not who you are. Do not proclaim that to yourself. Who you are is who God has said, I am. And if we look at Jesus' baptism, this is who we are. The Father looks down out of heaven to Jesus as as he's being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends onto Jesus as a dove. And the Father, the voice out of heaven, looks at him and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's before Jesus ever worked any ounce of ministry. Before he ever healed anybody. Before he ever provided any meals to anybody. Before he ever earned anything from God. God looks at him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Same thing for us. Every single day, we live under this banner, this posture of grace that is freely given from a God who is not keeping score, but rather providing for us hope and faith and love. Grace shines brightest when faith, hope, and love are sent by God to redeem the helpless, the hopeless, and the heartless so that no one boasts in their own works, but solely in the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come, Emmanuel, God with us. He came not because we summoned him, but because God wanted, to, wanted us to enjoy him once again. So this Christmas, if you are a believer, enjoy the gift of Christ in your life. That's simply it. Man, when we think about this baby being born, Let's just think about the fact that a baby came to provide us a better than. A better than. When you open up presents and they're not exactly what you were hoping for, there's something else that's providing better hope. When we're struggling daily to figure out or muster up the strength and ability to read our Bible or whatever, Let's just remember that God provides us a faith that leads us to be able to do that. So let's go to Him in prayer rather than trying to muster up our own strength to be able to be good Christians. Let's trust Him at His word. And let's let that hope and that faith that He provides to us build within us a love for Him and for others. So enjoy the love, hope, and faith you have in our Savior. Savor it. Worship Jesus. Tell Him of His good news and the joy that He provides to all people. I'm going to have the band go ahead and, and come on up. We're going to close this sermon out with a couple of songs, one being Silent Night. And as we, as we sing this song, Silent Night, I want us to first think about, let's just envision, put ourselves as spectators at the baby in a manger. That this was a night designed by God to fulfill all of his promises that were given to humanity. When we think back on Genesis 3 and sin breaking in, fracturing into creation, God promised through the offspring of the woman that there would be one that would come that would destroy sin, evil, and death. 
that provides hope to Adam and Eve in that moment where they've just experienced death. And then throughout the Israelites, they have this promise of a Savior to come, and they've just been waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, this Savior comes. And he comes in the form of a baby in a manger. And so let's just focus on that. Let's think about that in this time. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at